Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 6, Clinical Reasoning in Teacher Education. Hello and a warm welcome back to the podcast. And if you hear anything different, it's because this is our first full episode in our swanky new studio. Oh, it's very swanky. If only we could convey to you... (laughs) The sheer level of swankiness. Yeah, I almost feel like I'm not worthy of these surroundings. I don't think we were expecting this when we recorded our first episode uh, in a hotel room and our second one in your front room. <laughs> no, no. I th- it feels like we've somehow gotten ideas above yeah. our station here. I yes. don't know whether we're worthy, but we'll have a go anyway. We'll have a go. And thank you to our friends in uh, MSC Sport Broadcast who are sharing this facility with us and being very nice and very friendly and yes. hospitable. So thanks to them. So it's just us today. We have no special guests. And when we don't have a special guest, we either are reduced to talking about our own ongoing doctoral research or research or <laughs> Or we drag an article out of the cupboard and really dive into it. And that's what we're going to do today because we have an article which is particularly relevant to student teachers and those who look after them in various contexts. It's an article by Krivalt and Turnage from 2013 and it's called Conceptualising an Approach to Clinical Reasoning in the Education Profession. And this is one that you're finding interesting, isn't it? Because you are one of the people responsible for looking after our wonderful mentors. Absolutely. So um, I'm always on the lookout for strategies, approaches, teacher education approaches that can be given to our school-based teacher educators, but also teacher educators throughout the programme. Because as we know, and listeners who've listened to our podcast in in the past will know we've got a clinical practice model of initial teacher education which puts the university provision and school provision on sort of equal standing in developing student teachers. So we're all teacher educators. So clinical reasoning, um, now that I've just mentioned the term clinical practice, is a conceptual sort of idea but also an approach, a practical approach that aims to develop the student teachers sort of problem solving and critical thinking skills about their teaching practice. It helps them to develop their practice in a much more sort of inquiry based way but also crucially it's a reciprocal approach in that it shouldn't only develop the student teachers understanding, knowledge, deepen their sort of understanding of of their teaching practice. It might also and it also has the potential to develop the teacher educators understanding of their practice too it's a reciprocal approach so why do we need it in the first place this is something that I talked to our mentors this year about during professional learning when I introduced this term clinical reasoning to them why do we need to improve it why do we need to introduce introduce it in the first place well first of all and this is something that Krivalt and Turnage mentioned in the article we know that teaching is a really complicated and complex act I'm going to put in air quotation marks and we know that experienced teachers and we've talked about this in previous episode on the the podcast their knowledge in use or tacit knowledge that they use that they tap into in the moment in the lesson that they're teaching can be really difficult for student teachers to access because they're not giving them a moment by moment play by play justification of why they're doing what they're doing in the classroom 
We also know that expertise revealed in practice can be really quite difficult to articulate. We do a lead lecture to student teachers at the start of the programme. We talk about how complex teaching is. We talk about it about it being sort of simultaneity of it. You've got multiple things happening all at the same time. It's kind of rooted in history. Things have happened before that lesson that have a bearing on, on things that are happening in the moment in the lesson. So those sort of decisions that the expert and again I'm going to put it in quotation marks expert teacher is making in the moment in the lesson can be quite difficult to articulate to the student teacher and it's difficult for the student teacher themselves to tap into because largely those decisions are happening in the mind of the teacher you know it is it's invisible it's tacit and it's implicit so If we're valuing an approach to teacher education, which is not just about the sort of craft of teaching, the sort of performative, visible act of teaching, if it privileges what's going on in the mind of the teacher, their critical thinking, their problem solving, their reasoning, their inquiring mind, then we need approaches that encourage a novice to develop that way of thinking. And that's what clinical reasoning does really well. So we're going to get into the sort of the what is it and the how do we do it a bit later in the episode. And this is where we get into the kind of whole clinical bit. And I remember when we were designing our new programmes, everybody got a bit sort of harumphy about the idea of calling it clinical practice. We sort of didn't like it. Mm. Um, and actually, it mentions in the article, doesn't it? That, yeah. that it's not always a good fit, this idea that we're sort of going around diagnosing people and, and you know, giving them medicine to make them better. But I think what, they, what they're pointing out is it's this idea in medicine that you can read all the textbooks and you can read all the sort of, if they present like this, then they've got this. But then they have this idea that these less experienced medical types need to wander around a hospital with a more experienced one who will induct them into those kind of strange edge cases and those are, but you know, once upon a time I did this and then this and then that. And you can only really do that by getting out of that textbook and going and seeing some real cases and considering them holistically but it has to be built on that evidence first yeah you're absolutely right and uh, you know it's, it's words like diagnosis and in some ways evidence um we're becoming a lot more comfortable i think in education with the term sort of evidence-based approaches or theory-informed practice but you're right that sort of idea that we're diagnosing the problem can be a bit uncomfortable but If we think about it, those expert teachers are doing that day to day. But I think the thing that makes that sort of the parallels between what medical practitioners are trying to do and teachers are trying to do is that idea that you just mentioned there about you're dealing with a whole person. You're dealing with a complex scenario, a case where there could be multiple answers to the problem at hand. And it's only through that sort of explorative dialogue between a more advanced and more experienced mentor and the novice that those different options, those different um, possibilities about how to solve the problem can come to the fore and that the novice can be encouraged to consider the evidence because that might not be abundantly clear to a novice who is maybe just trying to survive in the first instance in the classroom. So it's sort of 
helps um, if they can have a light shone on what happened after the fact and so that they can analyse it, pick it apart and most crucially when it comes to clinical reasoning, start to challenge some assumptions that they perhaps might have made or they might make which could guide their next steps. I quite like this idea that we're trying to walk in the right place along a continuum, you know, and at one end you've got a crazy maverick artist who's doing it all by instinct, you know, and you don't want that in your doctor or your teacher, I suppose. And at the other end, you've got this sort of really hidebound flow chart sort of on legs who's just going through the procedures and doing it the same way no matter what's in front of them. And, and of course, there's never a right place along that continuum. You have to place yourself in the right right position for that moment. And you're right, if you're new to it, if you're, I guess, if you're a, a novice medic or a novice doc, a novice teacher, doing that while stuff is going on in real time and there's distractions going on is really tricky. Yeah, it is. And I think the goal with this, and they say this in the article, is to develop this process of clinical reasoning so that it becomes internalised and part of the teacher's professional practice going forward. And I'm minded of Dr Elizabeth McGregor and something that she said at the start of this season's uh, podcast. She talks about and she advises student teachers to slow down. And I think what clinical reasoning does, and hopefully when we get into the nitty gritty of it, we'll see this, it encourages teachers to slow down their thinking, to really consider what happened, why it happened, different ways of looking at what happened, considering what they need to do next to better understand what happened, and then to consider what their next steps are based on the integration of all and synthesis of all of that that evidence. But crucially, what it does say is that although it wants, um, it, the goal is for this to become internalised or sort of automaticity of it, it ought to be done within a culture of collaboration. And this is what I think is quite important to outline from the off with clinical reasoning. If we, if we want this to work in a teacher education context and in school more broadly, is that the article states that participants need a shared commitment to inquiry as a means to improve teaching. They need to be sort of in a culture of collaboration and there needs to be this sort of inquiring stance that's, that they're comfortable with. That can be quite uncomfortable and arguably maybe a little bit disruptive to historical relationship power balances between mentor and student teacher where perhaps in the past it's been much more of a sort of apprentice model where you watch me do this now you copy me I am the fountain of knowledge I will give you that knowledge and you will you will become made in my image this positions mentor and student teacher as kind of co-inquirers and so you might sort of question is there a right time for this to happen? Uh, is a student teacher going to be able to cope with this kind of approach early on? So, And if not, is there going to be sort of a process of modelling it and sort of building up the student skills to be able to do it well? So this is why I quite like it as a teacher education approach because it's going to take some expertise on the part of the teacher educator to consider how to use it effectively with the student teacher depending on where they are in their journey. Yeah, I was really taken with a bit where they started mentioning John Hattie, as someone a, a lot of teachers will know about because he's talked a lot about pupils learning. And I guess when we make that journey from being 
just someone who's teaching pupils to someone who's teaching student teachers. We can get on board with that whole hatty thing of oh, the pupils, if they articulate what they're doing, if they articulate their learning, it will deepen their cognition and all that kind of thing. To apply that then to the process of your new member of the teaching profession learning is quite a small jump. But I've been doing a fair bit of reading for a piece of work I'm doing about mentoring. And it does say that actually you do have to consciously put the conditions in place to level that sort of status imbalance between the mentor and the student teacher. And sometimes that won't happen by itself and you have to have strategies to make that happen. And there are various various ones of that. I was also taken with something Furlong wrote, the mighty John Furlong, who's <laughs> very much involved with teacher education, about that journey. You know, that you start off as a model, you start off kind of showing what good practice is, and by the end you should aim to be a co-inquirer. But that is not necessarily something that's going to happen by itself. No, no, it, it's not. Um, and that's why I think the sort of the conditions need to be right and they do take great pains to clarify this in the article. There are four elements to clinical reasoning that they outline but the first one is probably most resonant with what we've just discussed which is that this dialogue between mentor and student teacher needs to be respectful and reciprocal. It's characterised by listening. They talk about active listening in the article. It's open dialogue. And I suppose you can infer from that that the mentor and student teacher aren't coming into it with, I don't know, they, they will come into it with preconceived ideas, but they haven't necessarily got an agenda. They're open to be sort of surprised by what they're learning, open to new ideas coming from one another. And crucially for teacher educators, mentors in particular, skillful prompting. And I think this is where Crevalt and Turnage sort of played a blinder really. And they really sort of, I see myself and Tom, I'm sure you see yourself in them, that they, this with this article, they wanted to give mentors the tools to be able to encourage clinical reasoning. So they put together some conversation prompts that we'll give you a flavor of in a bit. But that skillful prompting is definitely something that we've discovered through our own research that the quality of the dialogue between mentor and student teacher, and most importantly, the sorts of questions and the way you ask questions of the student teacher is probably going to have a big bearing on the quality of their thinking about what happened or about their practice. So yeah, I would agree with you, Tom. I think it's really important that that learning is made visible, but that it's done in such a way that attempts to reconfigure the relationship between the mentor and the student teacher. Yeah, I've read about all sorts of clever tricks to make that happen. It's, it's been quite interesting, some of the reading I've done, you know, having video recordings of lessons that have been taught so that there's no argument over what actually happened. You know, people's, people's recollections are the same. I've seen suggestions that the student teacher should be the one who decides what gets discussed so they get control of the agenda and that raises them up a little bit. I've, I've seen suggestions that a third party, a university person comes in as a sort of neutral party to level the playing field a little bit but what's been really interesting in the things that I've read is that it doesn't really matter what clever tricks and tools you use 
it's just very, very important that people are face to face having a genuine dialogue. I've certainly seen attempts made to do this stuff via kind of asynchronous text methods, you know, writing diaries, all this kind of thing. And all of them conclude that these tools and tricks are lovely, but really you do need an excellent mentor who's got the tools and the right questions and the ability to set up a real dialogue, which is nice for the mentors, really, because it really sets up their real importance in this process. Yeah, it really does. And I, and I guess the thing that we haven't mentioned that's fundamental to all of this is that they get to know the needs of the student teacher in front of them so that they can use the tools in the in the right way and, and differentiate as it were so we we probably need to be a bit clearer now about what clinical reasoning is and i've got a quote here from the article so creevalt and turnage say that clinical reasoning is the analytical and intuitive cognitive processes that professionals use to arrive at a best judged ethical response in a specific practice-based context and I, I really like that it privileges both types of sort of, of knowledge this intuition which is a, as important as analysis because sometimes you know that gut feel that we get about what's going on in the classroom is important really important that we home in and we will get into this in more detail uh, this idea of a best judged ethical response a big part of clinical reasoning is challenging assumptions that not just the student teacher might hold, but in fact that the mentor might hold about learners, about learning, about teaching, in order to reach that best judged ethical response. And then most importantly, it's happening in a practice-based context. It happened live, it happened with all of those other things going on at the same time. So it really is a tool that's meant to be used and it's gonna be really powerful when out in the school context itself. So then they outline these four elements of clinical reasoning. The first one I've already mentioned, that respectful and reciprocal dialogue. The second is the iterative use of data and evidence. And this refers to the ways in which mentors and student teachers draw upon classroom data. And I'm using data with a small d here. <laughs> you know, data can be qualitative. It can be, you know, how did the pupils respond? Like what kind of you know, visible behaviours could I see when I introduce this new concept? How quickly and easily and readily were they able to get on with the task after I'd explained it to them? But that might also be harder data, such as the evidence in books. You know, what did they actually produce? What was the work? And obviously that might not just be in books. If you're in a more practical subject, it might be what did you observe in the lesson? So there's a number of sort of different data streams that teachers and student teachers draw upon in order to think about the data and the evidence. But they also identify that another stream of evidence or data is theory. So they use the classroom data and the theory to support evaluations and well-reasoned designs for next steps in teaching. So in layman's terms, they're going, right, what happened? How do I know? What would theory have to say about this? What am I going to do next based on what I've just sort of synthesised? And actually, as a, a new member of the profession, you sometimes don't know what... what the important data is, do you? I mean, there's also, before you even get down to anything else, there's the process of applying some criticality to that data. And there's that glorious quote about, you know, do we assess what we value? Do we value what we assess? Yeah, you yeah. Know, what's important, what's not important? Is my data tail wagging my teaching dog? All of that is new to a new teacher. Yeah, you're right. And that's where the sort of expertise of the mentor or teacher educator comes in, in that they might be able to 
identify the sort of hinge moment in the lesson that needs deeper analysis and might then sort of skillfully prompt the student teacher to unpack that bit because they know from their own expertise that that was the bit where either it caused things to go wrong or right or whatever. The third uh, element of clinical reasoning is articulating reasoning. And this makes the student teacher's learning visible. So going back to that point that Tom made about Hattie and, and visible learning. But it also makes mentors' tacit knowledge accessible. So that gives you a little hint here that this isn't just the mentor prompting the student teacher to talk about what happened in their lesson. It could also be flipped and the student teacher could use these question prompts to encourage the mentor to articulate or the mentor could just use the prompts themselves to unpack something that happened when they were teaching as well. And then finally, the fourth element is probing personal assumptions and theories. And this comes back to this sort of well-informed ethical judgment that you might make. So this is central to supporting a more critical orientation towards improving teaching. And I really like this quote from the article. It interrupts unquestioning acceptance and imitation of existing beliefs and practices and we talked about this a lot in a previous episode about beginning teachers learning we all have existing beliefs and practices that we've maybe picked up over the years from our own experiences as learners our experience of teaching but we don't necessarily slow things down enough in the teaching profession to really question them and to understand where those beliefs come from and if they're really relevant and working well for the learners in front of us. So those are the four elements. And there's such a two-way street there, isn't there? Because, I mean, just incidentally, I love the idea that the mentor might actually have to ask some of these questions of themselves initially to mm. model it so that the student feels confident to do it. But also this idea that uh, students don't always notice everything because there's so much of it and it's, it's so tacit and, and difficult to unpack. I've started to realise that there is also a noticing in the other direction, isn't there? And there mm. are personal assumptions and theories sometimes about what the student teacher is thinking or where the student teacher is coming from. And sometimes these question prompts can work in a sort of backwards way to help the mentor unpack and understand some quite tacit things about their student teacher. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought this up, actually, because... An example that I use in the professional learning with mentors this year was something that I'm sure I've been guilty of saying myself in the past, okay, so there's no shame here. I've heard lots of mentors and I've said myself, I've told them this time and time again, I've given them this feedback, I've given them this feedback and they're still not doing it. There's got to be a reason. <laughs> it's like that thing, isn't it, about I've taught them this, I've taught them this a yeah. hundred times, but have they learned it? It's the same, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's just in a different level. You know, and we're all... I mean, it's a controversial thing to say maybe, but I think we're all really quite self-conscious about our practice and, and wanting to do well. It comes from that good place, but you know, it's uncomfortable having to sort of unpick, well, why is it, is it, was it actually something to do with me? And that's the reason why it hasn't landed. So the clinical reasoning conversation prompts, they're worded in such a way as to expose maybe um, some of those blockages, issues, challenges that the student teacher is facing and might 
cause the mentor to come to better understand the problems and the reasons why a student teacher isn't able to act on that feedback. So for example, they've got questions to check and develop understanding. And the wording is really important. So one of the questions they've got is, I noticed, fill in the blank, am I right about that? (laughs) So for example, I noticed that you didn't use the strategy that I told you to use last lesson. Am I right about that? Or it puzzled me when you didn't use that strategy that I mentioned to you before. Um, Can you tell me why you took the decision not to use it this time around? You know, and obviously it might be the student's gone. Oh, yeah. I I, I totally forgot. I totally forgot. And and that's fine. (laughs) To us all. (laughs) Um, You know, but it could sort of test test that we, we talk a lot about with pupils you know checking for understanding using this sort of approach as opposed to I've told you to do this before you didn't do it why didn't you do it it, tr- it, it it's using the questioning to expose some of their reasoning um, and therefore allow you to be able to support them better yeah it's probably probably time to give another shout out to the idea of video here I mean I, we all hate the idea of getting videoed but a lot of the reading I've been doing recently for another piece of work which I, I don't want to do too many spoilers because we'll probably have an episode on it soon as <laughs> uh, soon as I can get my co-author round this table but um, it's this idea that I mean, we remember Louise Allen Walker telling us that memory is incredibly fallible do you remember when we were doing yes. that um, crazy gimmick last time she was in and actually if you say oh I noticed that XYZ happened I guess you need to be prepared as a mentor for the fact that either the student teacher is not going to recollect it in the same way or may not have noticed. And I've seen plenty of examples where people are saying that video can be good because you can freeze a moment that is so fleeting and so ephemeral that there was just no chance that the student teacher was going to notice it. Sometimes it's as simple as the fact that the mentor was at the back and the student might have been at the front. And we've all as mentors said, oh, God, we get a really different view of what goes on in my classroom when I get to stand at the back. And so there's definitely a shout out there, potentially, if everybody's comfortable in using it for the use of video because it does reduce things down to a concrete thing and it allows you to watch things over and over again. I saw a lovely example in an article of a student teacher who was just watching this moment over and over again when a a pupil kind of lost their investment in the lesson because they'd had their hand up and hadn't been noticed, you know, for ages. And they hadn't, they didn't have a chance of noticing that in the lesson, but they just watched this moment over and over again on this video and it really kind of rammed it home for them. Yeah, and if you combine that moment, let's use that as an example now with some of these additional conversation prompts, you could really help the student teacher to come to understand what happened in that moment and to also emulate this approach when they have an issue like this arise in future. So let's say they've just watched that moment, the student, the pupil put their hand down. You might then ask questions that focus the student's attention on key aspects of their practice and pupil learning. So they might say, well, well, what questions does this raise? They might say, what intervention is likely to have the greatest impact with this pupil in future? Or what could I have done? What has been done and how can progress be made from here? And that might be, you know, what has been done with regard to your questioning technique? What do you need to do next to progress it further so we don't have this sort of loss of interest? You might ask questions that prompt student teachers to seek and use evidence. So let's say the student teacher, having watched that footage, says something like, I don't know, well, that particular student isn't very engaged generally. You might then ask, well, what evidence supports this or how do we know? 
You might ask, how could we check if this is so? You might ask, what literature can we seek to advance our thinking? And maybe that's in relation to their questioning technique. Maybe they need to look at opportunities to you know, encourage more pupils to respond. Yeah, and I think uh, it's worth considering the opposite uh, possibility there because, you know, that example where the student teacher gets a bit defensive about it, I think in the article I read, actually the student teacher was pretty cut up about the fact that this kid had been sitting there with his hand up the whole time and got really miserable. So I think it's probably important for for the mentor, having kind of spotted this thing and, and talked about it, to actually get them out of a potential hole where they're thinking, oh, I've lost this pupil forever, you know, they're never going to want to engage in my lessons again, to explain that it can sometimes just be as simple as getting them to do something right at the start of the next lesson, which engages them, and it'll all be forgotten, you know, because sometimes they can be very defensive and and not agree but other times they can think it's like the worst mistake in the world yeah and i i guess this is where sort of clinical reasoning comes into its own because it will hopefully bring those things to the fore and then it will encourage them to sort of test out ideas assumptions and decisions and those assumptions might be assumptions about themselves you know i'm 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 not up to this i'm not good enough etc so there are questions specifically designed to encourage the testing of ideas, assumptions and decisions. And they're things like, well, what would happen if? What is the assumption? How might you investigate or test that assumption? I mean, an example of this might be that, you know, this particular class can't do group work because, you know, they haven't got the independent learning skills to be able to do it without me. So a teacher might say, a mentor might say, well, what, what's the assumption that you're making there and how might you investigate or test that assumption? Explain why you say that. You know, it seems like it's such a simple question, but just probing a little more deeply, encouraging the students to justify their point of view. How do your reasons support your decisions? And what were or might be any unintended consequences of that action? So, for example, if you're never going to do group work with this class, what might be the unintended consequences of that action? Yeah, very tiring teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a music teacher. Oh, goodness, maybe we do a lot of group work. <laughs> so you could get into even more depth here about using these sorts of questions to tackle things like deficit perspectives and they might inadvertently begin to do that if the mentor is invested in this sort of idea of reciprocal inquiry with their student teacher because let's face it even when you were a mentor Tom I know you were a mentor for a while in school I'm sure there were things that came up that even you felt you hadn't cracked Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was always very careful to make sure the students knew I didn't think I was particularly great at things. I mean, <laughs> I said to you the other day, didn't I? I think my my big weakness as a teacher is that everybody feels like they get things when they're in the room with me, but but it doesn't tend to last very long once they get out of my classroom. You know, they feel very, very confident. We all feel very happy and we all get it and it's all wonderful. And then their confidence drains away very, very fast when they're, when they're not with me. And I think that's always been... A problem with my teaching. I've never quite cracked, to be perfectly honest. I think people just say, yes, Tom, we get it, just so I'll shut up and go away, to be honest. But yeah, I was always very, very keen to to kind of point out where I felt things had gone wrong. Yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, the profession is plagued with sort of accountability, culture, imposter syndrome, you know. So 
adopting this sort of stance where you're you're effectively positioning yourself as a learner constantly as a teacher this is something we've talked about on the podcast before can be quite uncomfortable when you've been in the profession for a while and you yeah. perhaps feel like you ought to know your onions by that point <laughs> but I think it does help you to grow a lot more when when you sort of adopt this inquiring stance and we you use these sorts of approaches like clinical reasoning because you know you're dealing with human beings who are always going to throw up things that you hadn't anticipated or planned for yeah and perhaps that hattie point is the way into that for a mentor you know if they're well how do i do this you know do i just have to rip all my own lessons apart after every time i teach but well there's that idea that hattie says that learners pupils deepen their understanding of what they're doing if they articulate it so it could just be as simple as saying well I'm going to articulate what I'm doing now and it's going to be good for me because it's going to deepen my own understanding of my own teaching practice yeah yeah I think it would be it would be really really helpful to both parties in that equation when I delivered this to mentors during professional learning this year, we talked about, you know, when we might use these conversation prompts for clinical reasoning, because in the article, it sort of states that the idea is in the article, they're focusing on student teachers. But the hope is that these sorts of conversations become characteristic of that sort of culture of collaborative inquiry, of an inquiry stance. So they hope that, you know, these conversations will start to happen outside of the classroom. But if you're a mentor and you want to sort of know, well, when might I use, we talked a lot about it being sort of post-observation, but it could be when you're scrutinising the student teacher's lesson plan and, or talking through the learning and teaching plan before it happens. It could be when you're engaging in team planning with the student teacher. Um, something we do a lot on our programme here at Cardiff Met is we encourage students to team plan and teach with their mentor before they become independent in teaching. Um, it could be after a formal or informal lesson observation. And as Tom mentioned, maybe get the video recorder out and that might make it even more powerful after the student teacher has observed their mentor's lesson, or maybe following some form of research and inquiry activity that the student teacher has done that the mentor hasn't been party to, they could really learn a lot from the student teacher because the student teacher in our model of ITE is living the programme in a way that is not always visible to the mentor. So it might be that they use these sorts of conversation prompts such as what are you going to do, how might you investigate what you've learned, what might this mean for this lesson with this class um, could be quite fruitful not only for the student teacher but for the mentor too. Yeah and I really like that line in the concluding section because it could be so easy to just say oh thanks very much for the question prompts you know I'll go <laughs> off and deploy those whenever I'm speaking to my student teacher but they do make the point at the end and I think it is a very important point to make that yeah those question prompts are brilliant but they're not the kind of thing in themselves. They are an indicator of a kind of state of mind and a state of the relationship as well between a mentor and a student teacher. It's not that you're just going to laminate those question points and pin them to your wall. They are an indicator of how you should manage that relationship and go about that learning process. Yeah, I guess it's, it's as with all of these things, they require careful thought, consideration, dare I say it, harping back to a previous episode of, of mine on my research, it requires the teacher educator to go through a process of sort of pedagogical content knowledge production where they go like, who is the student I've got in front of me? What is the strategy that I'm hoping to use? Who are the 
pupils that they're working with? What is the content that the student is trying to deliver? So what is going to be the best way for me to use this teacher education um, approach, such as clinical reasoning, that's going to benefit the student best? And I think that's absolutely right, as with all of these things. Otherwise, we're kind of reverting back to that sort of craft-based, I'm, I'm going to use these questions prompt because I've been told to, and this is the strategy, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. So it requires some thinking. Yeah, and I think also it's probably worth saying that you're not always going to get super popularity by doing this kind of stuff. There's always going to be a temptation on the part of a very, very busy serving teacher to just tell them what mm. to do next time because it's quicker. Mm. And there's also going to be a kind of complimentary thing coming from the student which is look don't make me unpack this just tell me what to do next time that's always the temptation so you're not always taking the easy route by doing stuff like this no they in fact they 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 mention this in the article don't they when they're talking about the differences between experts and novices and how novices they will have to revert to rules and rules of thumb because that's all they've got um, at the beginning. Of course, they don't, you know, for some of them, that's not all they've got. They've got experiences beforehand. But generally speaking, they will only have those rules. So breaking the rules is just not possible at that point because they don't necessarily have that lived experience to sort of draw upon in order to make those in the moment decisions. So start knowing that and then extend them further by starting to introduce some of these approaches at the right moment in time for that particular student. But know that if you're not doing it, you know, particularly at the beginning when you just need to help them survive, that's okay too. Lovely. So that article appears to be very freely available online, open access. We always love a bit of open access. So just to reiterate what it is, it's Crevalt J and Turnage D. It was published in 2013. The title is Conceptualising an Approach to Clinical Reasoning in the Education Profession. It was published in the Australian Journal of Teacher Education. And a quick look on your favourite web search engine will turn up multiple copies open access. And I think we're shamelessly putting that forward as your something interesting for this yes. episode. <laughs> yes, go away and read it. And then for something to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you turn to pages 111 to 112, you'll find the conversation prompts that we've given you a flavour of in this episode. Um, there are more than we could cover in this episode. So have a look at them and give them a try. And maybe if you don't want to try them in the first instance with a student teacher, or in fact, you're a listener who doesn't work with student teachers, maybe try doing it with a colleague or alone if you feel more comfortable based on something that happened in a lesson that you taught recently. Yeah, and that co-planning and co-teaching and co-evaluating thing works no matter where you are in the teaching profession, really, doesn't it? Absolutely, really important. We've been doing a lot of research on communities of practice, but no spoilers on that. (laughs) (laughs) No, we need to fill those episode slots. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode. We hope you found it useful. We will be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma O'Doha and Tom Breeze. We hope you enjoyed this run around the clinical reasoning article. You can find a link to it in the show notes and it's available open access. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter or X at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and tell us what you think. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.